Last week, we had the joy of looking at a, a very striking passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be there again this morning. So if you'll take your Bible and open it to Philippians 2, we'll read in just a few minutes. As you're finding it there, though, let me recap just a little bit. Paul, at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians, he's expressing his desire for them to be of one mind. That's at the beginning of chapter 2, that is. And he says, if they would be unified, if they would have unity around the gospel, then that would complete his joy, he says in verse 2. They had experienced encouragement in Christ and they were to show that to one another they had experienced uh, the love and comfort of God they were to show that to one another as well and what Paul shows them and us through verses 1 to 8 of chapter 2 is this that unity is birthed out of and sustained by Humility. Humility. So remember, if we at Jackson Bible Church are going to have the kind of humility that God desires us to have, we are each going to have to cultivate humility in our hearts. And the passage there before us, it lays out some principles of humility It's the opposite of selfish ambition and conceit. It's it's self-forgetfulness, we might say. It involves considering others above ourselves, considering others more significant than ourselves. It's very different than our cultural paradigm, isn't it? The cultural paradigm, the cultural mantra is I'm looking out for number one, me, myself, and I, right? But an attitude of humility has an eye and a mind and a heart towards others. It's others-focused, not me-focused. It's the opposite of selfishness. That is what is going to be needed in our hearts if we're going to dwell together in unity and preserve unity. And I know how very easy it is to hear any message and think, boy, I hope so-and-so hears this. They really need it, right? Well, yes, they do, because we all need it. But let's put it back on ourselves, right? God requires humility from every member of the body. Every member. So just think about for a moment the relational environment that would exist if everyone, if every person in the church looks after everyone else's interests. What kind of environment would that be? That sounds like a pleasant environment, doesn't it? 
I'm thankful that the Lord has given us a measure of unity here. I just want it to be preserved and remind us it's going to take humility. It's going to take people putting others above themselves, right? It reminds me of uh, Romans 12.10 where it says, Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. And how you show honor, what that means is you show that you value one another, right? We give preference to one another. We show each other how valuable I think you are and you think they are and so forth. That is what humility entails. And then Paul being the insightful and helpful teacher that he is, Paul the apostle who wrote this letter, he says, I know you're going to need an example to follow, an example to look to in this area of humility. The bar is high. Don't look to any lower than this. And he says, I just happen to know the most humble person who has ever existed. His name is Jesus. Let me tell you about him, he says. And then he proceeds to show us just how much Jesus considered others. And I won't preach my whole sermon from last week, but let's just say that the highest became the lowest. No one had ever been so high and yet gone so low as the Lord Jesus Christ. My dad used to quote this short poem by an unknown author, and I love it. It says, Wouldst thou be chief? Then lowly serve. Wouldst thou go up? Then go down. But go as low as e'er you will. The highest has been lower still. I love that. The Lord Jesus is the supreme example in the area of humility. Look to him to see how it's done. See his self-sacrifice for others, right? See his commitment to others' joy. He humbles himself all the way from the throne of heaven down into an animal feeding trough. God became a human baby. Amazing. He lived 33 years on this earth, perfectly obeying God at every point and demonstrating perfect humility at every point. And sinful human beings like you and me hated him and killed him. And astoundingly, this was God's plan all along. To pour out the punishment that we deserved on Jesus, our substitute. The songwriter said, To see when they crucified him, nobody had imagined it. Not only was it part of the plan to save, but the climax of it. So when you hear the phrase, when we hear the phrase, substitutionary atonement, it's a big phrase, a big word, big couple words, but I hope the truth that's behind those words 
warms your heart. Because it's referring to Jesus taking my place, atoning for my sin, for your sin on the cross. We deserve the punishment. He bears it instead, and he gives us mercy. Greatest news ever imagined. And it was all possible because of the humility of Jesus. If he didn't come down, condescend from his throne, none of that would be true. We'd have no hope whatsoever. We'd all be bound for hell right now, right? Are you thankful that Jesus humbled himself? Amen. So his condescension led all the way down to a cross and then ultimately to a tomb. But here's what we're going to see today. He didn't stay there. (laughs) Praise God, he is alive. We don't worship a dead martyr. We serve a living Christ who is at this very moment in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He's the exalted Christ. He has a name that is above every name. That's the title of the message this morning, the name above every name. So let's read the passage like we did last time. And we kind of focused on verses 1 to 8 last time. Today we're going to focus on verses 9 to 11. But let's read all 11 of them. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11, the Word of God says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I stand here this morning before you as a herald. I'm coming in the name of the King of Kings. And here I stand in this pulpit to say to you, Jesus is Lord. He humbled himself to the lowest place for you. 
And now God has highly exalted him to the highest place. He's worthy of your praise and my praise. And I pray you'll have ears to hear this morning. Let's go through this text together and we'll just draw, some, draw out some things that are in it and then draw some conclusions near the end, okay? So first, I want you to notice with me, kind of backing up just a little bit from verse 9, verses 5 to 8 are about what the Son did. The Son, Jesus. But verses 9 to 11 is about what the Father did. The Son obeyed the Father, and then the Father acknowledges the Son in the most powerful way possible. The text says in verse 8, Jesus became obedient to the point of death. Obedient to whom? To the Father. And the obedient Son gets the full stamp of approval, if you will, from God the Father. And what did God do to show his approval of his son? Well, the text says, God highly exalted him. That's kind of an interesting phrase. Why didn't he just say, God exalted him? Why does it say highly exalted? Well, you can kind of know already, I'm sure, that this exaltation is on another level so to speak. Paul uses a word here that isn't used anywhere in the entire Bible except in this verse. It's only found right here in verse 9. And the Greek word that he used, it means God has super exalted him, hyper exalted him. That's why our translators translated it highly exalted This is like exaltation on steroids, we might say. And although this particular passage doesn't go into all the details as to what that means, what ought to be obvious to any thinking reader is this. Jesus is not dead anymore, is he? He's no longer a little baby, like we discussed last week. Reliant on his mother to feed him? The son, the, the son of God, the creator of the universe, in his mother's arms, relying on him to feed him. And he's no longer bent over with his back exposed from the flogging, beaten by sinful men, and he's no longer in the tomb, laying lifeless with the Grave clothes around him. He's alive and well. Andrew Peterson says in his song, he took one breath and put death to death. I love that. And he's no longer veiling his deity like he once was while he was on the earth. Now he is shining like the sun, gloriously radiant, full of life, dignified, honored, Preeminent. God the Father has super exalted His Son. Amen. What else does this passage say about Jesus' exaltation? Well, it says 
that God has given him the name that is above every name. You know, in the Bible, a name is more than just a word. It's more than just an identifier or a label for someone. When the Bible uses the word name in in Scripture, especially when it refers to God, it means all of that person, all of God, his entire being, all of his glory is bound up in his name. Psalm 29, 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So his name is him. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due him. His reputation. All that he is. And so here in um, Philippians 2, 9, says that God has given Jesus the name that is above every name. He's bestowed on him that. And here's a, a theological question. We've, we've been going through the whole book of Philippians, and you could preach multiple uh, sermons from each verse, really. But as we come across different questions that we may have, I want to deal with those. So here's a theological question for you. Um, we know that Jesus didn't start to exist when he was born as a baby, right? He existed prior to that. John 1 is a good example, among many other verses, but in the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus, which is very clear from that passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was way back there in the beginning before the universe was made. Jesus was existing. He was there. But My question is this, is this verse in Philippians, is it teaching us that Jesus became higher than he ever was after this exaltation by God? Think about it. In other words, did his position improve? Was he lower before and then he came into the world, humbled himself, pleased the Lord, died on the cross, and then God exalted him to a higher place than he'd ever been before. I'll try to help us answer that. I don't think that's what this passage is teaching. That would imply that Jesus was, what? He was less before. He was lacking in some way in his relationship to God. And then God improved his station somehow. This is not the case. Jesus said this of himself. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So in that one verse, Jesus is existing before creation and we see that he was glorified alongside the Father at that time as well. So... I think a better way to understand this exaltation in this passage is, is, is God is publicly acknowledging and revealing what had been previously veiled to the people of earth. Namely, that Jesus is the King of kings. They didn't see it. It was veiled in human flesh. But this is the Lord, the Father, acknowledging who his son has always been, revealing that to everyone. So 
Let's make sure we don't twist this to mean something that would contradict other scriptures, right? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always been the king of kings. He hasn't changed. He has never been improved. He can't be improved. He hasn't worked his way up to equality with God. He has simply been revealed to be what he has been all along. In other words, what may not have been obvious before because it was veiled by human flesh has now been made obvious by the Father. So, he's given Jesus the name that is above every name. What name is that referring to exactly? Is it just the name Jesus? That word? I don't think he's saying that, right? There's other guys in history named Jesus. And they don't share equality with this Jesus, do they? Again, this is talking much more than a mere name that we can write on a piece of paper. And he kind of saves the climax of what this means for the next part. Let's read on verse 10. It says, So at the name of Jesus, or we might say, So that before the person of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There it is. Jesus is what? Lord. From now on. God says, it is no longer veiled or hidden from you in any way. My son, Jesus, is Lord of all. He's more than a mere man. He is the God-man. Now, I want to I point something out to you here. Um, this passage takes this truth to a level that may not be obvious to us at first. And I want to try to show it to you. And I get chill bumps thinking about it, to be honest. <laughs> Let me try to show this to you. The word Lord in Greek is kurios. Kurios. And the Romans in that day, which Philippi, the, the group of, uh, or the city that this letter was written to, the believers in Philippi, was a Roman colony. And the Romans in that day would say this in reference to Caesar. They'd say, Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. It was kind of a loyalty check in a way. Who are you allegiant to? Kaiser Curios. Well, here come the Christians saying and teaching this. Christos Curios. Christ is Lord. No wonder the Romans didn't like him very much, right? And they weren't overturning the Roman government. They weren't trying to be insurrectionists or cause rebellions. But in their teaching and in their beliefs, they were subverting the authority that Caesar thought he had. They were saying, my allegiance lies not ultimately to Caesar, but to Christ. Christos Kyrios. 
And here's what I want you to see related to that. When you're reading the Bible and you're in the Old Testament and you come across the word LORD in all caps, you seen this? Good. Do you know what that means? Here's what it means. It means that the original Hebrew text, remember the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament written mostly in Greek. So when we see in our English Bible the word LORD in all caps, that's signifying to us that the original word is Yahweh. Yahweh is God's name. If you weren't sure about that, that's what it is. Yahweh is God's name. So he tells us that much, by the way, in Exodus 3. Why don't you turn there? Let's read that together. Exodus chapter 3. And don't worry, there will be a payoff to our kind of rabbit trail here. There will be a payoff regarding Philippians 2 in just a minute. But we need to do our due diligence working up to it for better make sense of it, okay? Exodus 3. In this passage, God is speaking to Moses. And he's speaking to him from a bush that is burning with fire but not being consumed. And he tells Moses there that he wants him to go to the king of Egypt and tell him, let my people go. Release my people. Pharaoh had made them slaves there. And Moses says to the Lord, I'm paraphrasing, what if my people, when I get there, what if my people, the Israelites, what if they say, what is his name? This God you said told you to come here. What's his name? Moses said, what am I supposed to say? Exodus 3, verse 14. Follow along with me there. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, in all caps, the Lord he was making sure they knew this was the God of their fathers. He says, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God refers to himself by this name, Yahweh. It's a, it, com it comes from a verb in Hebrew that just means to be. In verse 14 is where it comes from. I am. I just am. I'm the self-sufficient, self-sustaining one. Kind of like the bush that I'm seeing burning, but it's not being burned up. It's self-sufficient. Moses is getting it visually and he's hearing it too. God is saying by his very name, no one made me. I'm not dependent on anything. I just am. I'm Yahweh. And when the people of God would write, and they came to God's name, Yahweh, they wouldn't even write it. 
they wouldn't write it all out at least because they considered it too holy or perhaps they just were very careful trying not to take his name in vain. So what they would say instead or what they would uh, write would be the equivalent here of what I've written in English. It, of course, looks different in Hebrew, but it's like taking the vowels out where you have Y-H-W-H. And then on top of not writing it out, when they would just read the scriptures out loud, they wouldn't say that name either. Instead, they'd say Adonai, which means Lord, Lord or ruler. So, naturally, when the Old Testament, which was in Hebrew, when it was being translated into Greek, which is called the Septuagint, that's what the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called, the Septuagint, they would use the word Lord or Kyrios to refer to God. And in our English translations, we kind of get the best of both worlds. The translations, you know, the, the translators are not hiding anything from us. They are kind enough and smart enough to let us know when we're actually encountering the original name of God, Yahweh, by putting Lord in all caps. And sometimes when I'm reading the Old Testament, I'll read, and when I come across that all caps, Lord, I'll substitute in my mind or even say out loud, Yahweh, just enforce to myself. This is referring to the name of God. And we don't have to feel bad or weird about using multiple names for God. The apostles did that in Scripture under the inspiration of God. They called him God. They called him Lord. They refer to him in a multitude of ways. But now let me tell you how this relates back to Philippians 2. When our passage says in verse 10, Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it is hearkening back to another passage. You ready to go on another trail? It's hearkening back to a passage in Isaiah in which Yahweh is speaking. I know we're doing some page turning here, but I want you to see it. Turn to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. And let's read verses 21 to 25. And where we see the word LORD in all caps, I'm just going to say Yahweh to be clear here right now, okay? Isaiah 45, verses 21. We'll read through verse 23. It says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. 
to me, referring to Yahweh again, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And the Septuagint says, every tongue shall confess. Exactly as we see it in Philippians 2.11. So, Yahweh, the God of the universe, in Isaiah 45 is saying, I am God, there is no other. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Are you drawing the conclusion? Or are you saying, Isaac, so what? Here's the point. Philippians 2. God attributes to Jesus what is only attributed to Yahweh. In other words, Jesus is Yahweh. I got goosebumps just now. God is saying in Philippians 2, that his son Jesus is exalted and he's given him the name that is above every name. Lord, God, Yahweh. Yahweh does not give his glory to another, does he? He says that very explicitly in the Old Testament. And yet here, the father says, render to Jesus what you would render to Yahweh. We are one. This is mysterious, but it's glorious, isn't it? And then add to that, this is coming from an ex-Pharisee, Paul, who before he was saved, thought he was actually serving Yahweh by throwing Christians in jail. So he thought these Christians who claimed Jesus is Lord were blasphemers. They ought to be killed. But here we see Paul had quite a change of heart. What a transformation, right? From a zealous Pharisee to a Jesus proclaimer. And a man named John Bloom said it this way. He said it better than I could. He said, as a Pharisee, Paul knew this text very well. He's referring to Isaiah 45 that we read earlier. As a Pharisee, Paul knew this text very well. He knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus of Nazareth is Yahweh. He says, pause and feel the weight of that statement. Paul once approved of the execution of those who claim such things. He would one day die for proclaiming it himself. Astounding. And this is how we should view the Lord Jesus, as God himself. He is God. And this isn't just, this isn't a weird off-the-wall statement either. We read of Jesus saying things like this a lot in the Gospels. Listen to these. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Or, I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. Or even this one, John 8, 58 says, this is Jesus speaking, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
That sound familiar? God says his name is I am or Yahweh. And Jesus makes that reference about himself. And the people hearing him, they understood what he meant because it says in the very next verse, they picked up stones to throw at him. They thought he was blaspheming. And so I just took you on a journey there for a reason. I just want us to realize how big a deal it is in Philippians 2.11 when God says every knee is going to bow. Everyone. In heaven, on the earth, under the earth. In other words, angels, humans, even the demons, everyone, and every tongue is going to confess this. Jesus is Lord. Worship is to be rendered to Jesus. He is the sovereign Lord of all. And just in case we're still unclear, the Father is not jealous of this. He is not upset at this as if worshiping Jesus somehow takes away from him. He delights in this. He wants people to glorify and worship his son because it says in verse 11, it's all to the glory of God the Father. God is pleased when we worship his son, Jesus. It's what he wants. This is a glorious passage, isn't it? Let's just read it one more time, straight through, with all these things in our minds now, and then we'll draw a few conclusions. Let's read it one more time. Verse 9 through 11 of Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Now what does all this mean for us? How should this affect our thinking and living? Just a few examples. Jesus' exaltation is an example of the biblical principle that God exalts the humble. As it turns out, God delights to exalt those who humble themselves. The corresponding truth to that is he likes to humble those who exalt themselves. But listen to these verses. Matthew 23, 12, if you're taking notes and want to write these down for later. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14, 11 says the same thing. Then when Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you remember that? He says this in Luke 18, 14. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Or listen to James 4, 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 
all over the place. Here's the principle. The way up is down. The position that you and I are to be pursuing in this life is not the high positions, but a low position. I'm not talking about throwing away all your desire to progress in your career or your job or something like that. I'm talking about a mindset, an attitude. What's in your heart? We're to be humble people. Not thinking that we're better than people, better than anyone else. We're to serve others, not stand aloof over them as if we're superior, right? We're to be like our master, the Lord Jesus, who humbled himself and came to serve. One time, James and John were talking with Jesus, and they said, Hey, Jesus, can we, in your kingdom, can we sit next to you on your right hand and your left? Can that be our spot? And here's what the Bible says that Jesus said. Mark 10, 41 to 45. And when the ten heard it, that is the ten other disciples, when they heard that James and John had asked this, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But who, whosoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, Jesus, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let this permeate your life and your attitude and your demeanor and your heart posture before others. I'm a servant. And just an added thought it might be easy to be a servant when people are thanking you, being appreciative of what you're doing. But what about when they actually treat you like a servant? It's hard to be a servant when somebody treats you like one, isn't it? But the Bible calls us to be servants. And here's good motivation. God exalts those who humble themselves. Remember that. Now what else are we to do with this passage? How else is this supposed to affect us? Are there... Doctrines to believe. Are there doctrines to trust? Well, yes, there is. We've already talked about this one. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. He's no mere man. Somebody might say to you, or maybe you've thought it yourself at some point, how can putting my faith in a man who lived and died 2,000 years ago do anything whatsoever for me today? Well, if he was just a man, I would agree with the sentiment of the question. He wouldn't be able to do anything for us except make us look stupid for believing in a dead guy, right? But the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus was a mere man. 
teaches that he's Lord. He's God himself. He's one with the Father. He's Yahweh. And we talk about the attributes of God a lot. What, what God is like, you know, Scripture teaches God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Teaches that he's omniscient, all-knowing. Teaches that he's unchangeable, he's holy, he's sovereign. Well, here's the truth that comes out of Jesus is Lord. Everything that God possesses, Jesus possesses. He's God in human flesh. And the Bible teaches us that God is a trinity, right? He's one God in three persons. He doesn't have three parts, and there's not three gods. There's one God with three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's hard to fathom. But God isn't like any other thing in this universe. So we expect there to be some hard to fathom things about Him, right? But what the passage tells us is this. All that God is, Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. Another thing Jesus is Lord means to us is that we're accountable to him. Lord means ruler. Since he's Lord, well, that means we should obey him, right? It's not an option for us to take him as our Savior, And yet not take him as Lord. He's both. We can't dissect him that way. I'll take his saving part, but I'll take his Lord part and just push it over there. No. He comes as a package, so to speak. He made us. He owns us. And he doesn't rule us like a tyrant. He rules us like a loving and gentle father. He's so good and kind to us. But he has, by virtue of being Lord, he has the right to command us. We have the obligation to obey. And really, for people who have received so much grace from him, we can say with Scripture, his commands are not burdensome. This comes from 1 John 5, 3. It's our joy, isn't it, to obey God? We want to obey him out of gratitude for how good he's been to us. To save us from eternal ruin. Another doctrine to be believed from this passage. All people everywhere will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and God. This is what's coming but hasn't happened yet. In other words, does everyone today... Proclaim that Jesus is Lord? No. Does every knee bow to him right now in this, in this life? No. But what this passage does teach us, it's not a matter of if, but when. Every single person will bow and acknowledge Jesus to be Lord of all. And you and I we will either joyfully acknowledge it now and receive mercy and grace from him, or we will reject him and ignore him now only to regretfully admit this later. 
as we stand before him in judgment and we have to say, they were right. Jesus is Lord. It's too late then. So even those who have rejected Jesus in this lifetime will one day have to admit and acknowledge Jesus really was Lord of all. And they'll be on the receiving end of his wrath because they never put their faith in him at all while they had the opportunity. So my plea to you, if you're here in that position today, we're glad you're here. But just come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. Quit trusting yourself. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus who was the only one good enough to satisfy God. He will be your gracious Lord. He'll take care of you. He will love you. He'll go before you to prepare a place for you in heaven. And just, again, just it's, it's my warning to you from Scripture. It's not me talking. Scripture tells us this. If you do not do that, if you do not come to Him while you have the chance, you will still end up acknowledging that He is Lord. You'll just do it in sadness and regret and as you realize you should have believed this all along. So today is the day of salvation. Now. Come to him now. One commentator, Alec Motyer, he says this. Speaking of Jesus' crowning day when God exalted him. The crowning day has happened. It happened long ago, yet so pitifully few knew about it. The lovers of Jesus know it and rejoice, but the world's millions do not know that Jesus is king. But they will on the day when the king comes. Be ready for that day. Acknowledge that Jesus is Lord now because he is. One last thing this morning as to how this should affect us. Since Jesus is Lord... Worship and praise his name. So for those who love the Lord Jesus, this passage talking about the Lord Jesus and his lordship and his exaltation, this should be like gasoline in your worship tank, right? It keeps the fires of worship burning. When we just meditate on how from verses 1 down to 11, all that Christ has done in his humiliation, we bow, we praise him, we fall at his feet. This is the one who humbled himself for you and me, and were it not for him taking our place, we'd have every reason to be sad and depressed all the way to our graves. This world, I guess, would be like a a big waiting room of misery for what's to come. But we've been reconciled to God by the Lord Jesus. And God has highly exalted him now. 
What I'm saying to you is just meditate on these truths. Worship him. He is worthy of worship. Give your life to him. Worship him in every possible way that you can. Worship doesn't happen in this room or other churches merely, right? You can sing to him, yes. Read his word, yes. Bring your praises and requests before him in prayer. But in your daily life, cherish him in your heart. Make your everyday decisions on what will please him. Obey him. Share what he's done with the whole world. There are many ways we can worship him, isn't there? He's Lord. He's God. May he receive praise from his people today and every day. Amen. Let's praise him now in prayer. Father, it's made us glad to hear from you, from your word today. We've read about how you highly exalted your son, the Lord Jesus. We've just seen and, and thought about some of the ways that his lordship extends throughout the universe. We've seen that he's one with you. He is God in human flesh. There is no limit to his sovereignty the universe is His. We are His. We long to know Him better, Lord. It's why we keep studying. It's why we keep listening. It's why we keep preaching and hearing preaching. We want to hear about our Lord. We give you all the praise this morning for our salvation. Lord, we were dead in sin and you made us alive. By grace we have been saved. Lord, help our hearts just to overflow with praises to you. May your people just pour forth praise and adoration all the time. Thank you for making us part of your family. This we pray in the name of Jesus.